Hi, I'm Mackenzie Bagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, women playing men who dress like women. A gender-bending show celebrates Van Halen. I think if you saw men playing these roles, you'd be like, well, that's not really Eddie, that's not really Dave. But because you're already getting one step away because it's women playing men, like, we're never gonna look like them. Yeah. And then Van Halen's David Lee Roth famously insured his penis. How does that work? Well, the, the, the insurer is going to have to look at your earning potential, what you're making, what you do, and decide there's a nexus or a connection between your luxurious and beautiful eyebrows and the value of, the, of how you make your living. A very public breakup of a successful musician and a blonde of questionable talent who can do just about anything to the vaginas of rabid fans. No, it's not the conscious uncoupling of Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow, but rather the breakup of Van Halen, specifically the rift between Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth. A new play called Eddie and Dave, which finishes its run this weekend at the Atlantic Theater, delves into this legendary band breakup, but does so with a twist. All of the members of Van Halen are played by women. To learn more, we were recently joined by playwright and actor Amy Statz, who also plays Eddie Van Halen, and Megan Hill, who plays David Lee Roth. Here's that conversation. Amy, so you wrote the play. Yes, I did. Are you a huge Van Halen fan? Well, I am now, and I really, really love them now. You weren't before you started writing about it, though. Well, I had always known about them. Sure. And and um, and what I love to do, one thing I just really love to do when I'm wasting time is to watch uh, band confessionals, especially from, like, the 70s and 80s. I, I love music, but I also love, like, big burly or like iconic looking people being very human and being confused because it just makes me, I don't know, it's very human. Yeah. And I saw a video of them interview talking about uh, Dave and I just was uh, taken by, I just sensed there was a larger story and I was taken by their humanity, really, the brothers, and I wanted to know why they were so upset. And when I started exploring the story, I realized that there was... Um, just an amazing almost Greek tragedy in there. So so uh, I just delved in, and I didn't think anyone was going to produce it ever, so I just wrote it for myself, really. And then I thought Megan and I could play characters in it, and <laughs> it would be small, and then it just got bigger and bigger. And this video that you're talking about is about the, the tension between the Van Halen brothers and David Lee Roth and about his eventual departure? They He had departed, and they, they were just upset about his behavior, and um, just in, norm, in a normal human way. It just seemed like there was a story there. So I went in and then I fell in love with the music and I fell in love with Black Sabbath and I fell in love with like all those uh, video clips from like the 82 and stuff. It's just amazing. Yeah. You said that you wrote the part of David Lee Roth with Megan in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. What is it about Megan that reminds <laughs> you of David Lee Roth? Well, Megan is amazing. She's very, very funny, and she can do. She's got a, a, a part of her that is like, in the in the most generous, open-hearted way. That is just a, a, she can slide into the ridiculous in the most naturalistic, most amazing way. And I just felt like, I just felt like she could handle it like nobody else could. How's her? Jump kick. Amazing. <laughs> I it's trained. phenomenal. I trained. Yeah, it's really something I would to love see. to see that training montage. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think we need to back up just a second because you are both women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth are are cis men. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so why did you decide to write this part for yourself and Megan? Is it because you wanted to play these characters so badly? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I thought that, oh, I think this person is a shy person who's gotten angry. And I think... and. I'm a shy person, and I get angry. And I think I was just coming purely from a character point of view. I was like, oh, I feel angry. I really want to get behind that. I want to know what's going on. And and I didn't think about that he was a man, really. So it wasn't a big choice. It was just I wanted my friend and I to, like, work on something together. And then it was really fun because, you know, the play, these people say a lot of misogynistic things. And I think if men played it, it would be reprehensible. In terms of that genre of music, men take ownership over it a lot. And there's kind of an erasure of the fact that there are female fans and that women do like this music, too. It would be really gross, I think, if actual men were playing it. (laughs) But it it creates a separation. And also, I think if you saw men playing these roles, you'd be like, well, that's not really Eddie. That's not really Dave. But because you're already getting one step away because it's women playing men, like, we're never going to look like them. Yeah. You know, my kicks are never going to be as good as Dave's. He trained his whole life for that. It's true. It's true, but they're excellent. Don't tell yourself short, I would say. But we separate enough from it that I think that um, you can see the situation more. And, and, you know, a lot of the people that really love the show are hardcore Van Halen fans, very, very, like, alpha males. Guys, like, really appreciate it. Yeah, we had a guy that had seen them in concert 232 times. It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> as long wow. as we get their seal of approval, we're like, okay, good. Yeah, what was his response? He loved it. He loved, he loved it. it. He loved it. And he yeah. was like, I was cringing at points because I knew that's how they really treated each other. It was really sweet. And then we had a female fan come, and she gave us a lighter yeah. at the end at, at curtain call. She stood up, and she waved a lighter. I yeah, believe that's really the sweet. highest praise one can receive. From I, yeah. Van I was fan. like, I can die happy now. I'll take it. And yeah. Amy, you play Eddie Van Halen yeah. in the show. Can yeah. you tell me, um, you talk about his humanity, about yeah. his vulnerability, about yeah. his being a shy person who just gets angry. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about how you approached playing the role and about what you what you see maybe about Eddie that maybe the world doesn't see. Well, first of all, there's a lot of things about the man that I simply don't have privy to. I'm not him, and I don't know what um, what he's really like. But I think that there's something about um, people that are very, 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 very good at one thing and may have other things they lack in, like some social stuff or whatever, and the fact that he was so touched musically, like he was such a genius. and, and when you have that kind of talent and that kind of attachment to things, almost in a spiritual sense, then maybe you, and he also was extremely anxious and like extreme, it was really hard for him to be in front of people. And I just really thought about what that must have been like, you know, to be so in the spotlight and so private. I think that what the world doesn't know, I don't know either, because I'm just as much of a fool as anyone who's trying to like catch on to that and figure out what that is. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Megan, why do people like Van Halen? I I mean, I think they're pretty kick-ass. Mm-hmm. I mean, that opening to Hot for Teacher and the grunts and that that DLR gives. I mean, they're they're one of those bands where I think at their best they it's inexplicable because it is so visceral. Yeah. It hits you in it's it's music that hits you in the Doesn't gut and then it hits like you in the chest and like you just want to like 
rock out and you feel it in your body. And so I think that's why a lot of people like him. And then I think also people get really into the story of it, especially the hardcore fans. I mean, to kick out a lead singer and then still have a life after that with another lead singer and then go back to the previously, I mean, between like David and then Sammy and then Gary Sharon and then back to David. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, the fact that they've endured that, I think that's almost the impossible. I mean, when you hear of a, a lead singer leaving a band... You're like, oh, that's it for the band, or they'll become something else. But mm -hmm. since the core was always the Van Halen brothers, yeah. I think that's part of it, too. That's part of the appeal, that they've lasted for so long, too. But you go back to some of those albums, and it's just exciting. It's just exciting music to listen to, and I think it's purely on a visceral level. Mm -hmm. So the Van Halen brothers in the play, as well as David Lee Roth, are all played by women. Yeah. Um, the the bass player is represented just by a, a photo, a framed photo. Mm -hmm. the, sweet, sweet Michael Anthony. I, I don't yes. even know his name. I just know that he plays the, the Jack Daniels guitar, right? Yes, he did. Yeah, he was he the does. bass player. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was... <laughs> well, when I was writing it, there's just so much going on. It was really hard to write because it's it was like, I, I there was just so much history. So I was like... I don't know how to fit in this other guy. So I was just thinking of the glass menagerie when, you know, the dad's photo is just on the wall, the picture's on the wall. I'm like, I'll just put them on the wall for now because I didn't know what to there's do. There's too much going on. No, so there was a lot going on, going yeah. On. Well, yeah. It, there's another character as well, uh, Valerie Bertinelli, yeah, who, yeah. Um, who is played by a man. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so talk to me a little bit about that decision. A part of it was um, I felt like as a woman so often there's like, five great male roles in a play and then there's a woman who comes on and acts sort of like uh does stuff and she's reasonable but she gets you know the shaft and like all this stuff and i was just like i want to make a female part and have it played by a guy but also where she's like she's always really the smartest one. Oh, she's kind of like goes and does the right thing but you know she sort of made the men don't give her as much respect as they should and i thought it would be interesting to put that on um on a different shoe you know <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about um, costuming. That mm. must have been a tremendous amount of fun. <laughs> the costumes yeah. are, the clothes people wore at that period, and particularly that band, were amazing yeah. and crazy. So it was really fun. And, and David kind of pushed that, mm -hmm. too, that style and his sense of style and, you know, wearing his like encouraging them to like go to a, a salon and get their hair yeah, cut yeah. like almost like women and to wear uh, their girlfriend's clothes and to wear heels and um, and then later he went for a more sensible shoe and he was pure capazios. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that you can't one cannot endure decades of that type Not of pump. Not if you want to jump no, around. No. No. Yeah. You know, you, you got to have, have the capazio. You do want to jump need the sensible yeah. shoe. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's interesting in terms of you're essentially playing this in drag but also, mm -hmm. like, you're not really playing it in drag. Right. Because so much of the clothing is, is spandex, and as you said, like, you know. Well, they content. weren't hyper-masculine either, you know. But that, but then their fan base can be, is kind of comes across as very hyper-masculine. So it's this very interesting dynamic. And that's the interesting thing about that period, was that, like, these were, like, blue-collar alpha guys, and then 
Dave came in and was like, no, 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 because Ziggy Stardust is coming. Like, there was this other influence of like androgyny coming in. And so to have these kids basically be like, okay, you're going to wear your girlfriend's clothes and you're going to get your hair cut at their salons and you're going to go out on stage with all this stuff that was happening in their lives at the time must have been something pretty radical because you're having all this influx of androgyny coming from the music scene and then this sort of, you know, regular kids in this like, 1970s mm-hmm. world it must yeah. have been something you know Dave has cool. a great quote about his fashion where he's like I wanted to try everything on the menu he's like and if it goes out of style cool who cares yeah. at least I tried it he's totally. like and he's like and it should have gone out like I want to just always be trying new things at different yeah. times and I love that about about him yeah I, I want to talk a little bit more to you Megan about playing uh Dave Lee Roth because mm-hmm. it's just he's just over the top, everything is more mm-hmm. um, from the way he moves to his facial expressions, his <laughs> vocals to the clothes. Like he's just, he both isn't hyper masculine, but he's also like pure sexual testosterone energy. Yeah, he can be super sexy and then totally ridiculous the next moment. Um, he has, I mean, again, like he described himself as like he wanted to be a cross between Marilyn Monroe and Tarzan. And I think he achieved that in his Bingo. life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's exhausting. I'm like, I play him for 90 minutes and I'm exhausted. I don't know how he does it for 24 seven because it's it's really, and I think he he came up against a lot too because, and something we talked a lot mm-hmm. about in the process is objective versus subjective. Like Eddie is objectively one of the best guitar players of all time. He changed the game. He plays the guitar like the piano. He looked, you know, they he invented different guitars. I mean, he changed the game. And even if you don't like their music, you can't deny right. that he's one of the best. It's like you can it's like looking at a painting and saying, Well, I don't like that, but you know you can't do it. Mm-hmm. That's what people see. But with performers it's always different. And so with Dave it's totally subjective. And so but he is great and he's so good at what he does. And it took just as much work to do that as what Eddie, you disagree? I disagree. <laughs> but I mean, Ooh, but it's a different, different type of work. It's a different kind it's of work. Social, yeah, he he was so keen. But he was just as disciplined. Bridging all, yeah, yeah, no, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's funny. Yeah, um, but it is yeah with and, and a perfect like Dave hit MTV at the perfect freaking time. It was selling this visual yeah. medium came and Dave was. David Lee Roth was he perfect was born for, that. for it, Ugh. and it changed the dynamic in the band. And, and it was it was just like, and he's really crazy. smart and fast. Yeah. and like I mean, he was all about the sound bite. Um, he's really good at marketing. Really good at the visual. Like yeah. the, the, the 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 way he did. He designed like the T-shirts and the album covers and the all that stuff, and really had that very distinctive look. Had a lot to do with David Lee Roth. And is that at the source of the tension between Eddie and Dave, like substance versus style? I think it's like, intro- what we talk about a lot, introvert, extrovert, yeah. showman versus artist. They need each other. This yeah. is the thing that makes it exciting. They need each other because Eddie is so introverted. He's never, he, he comes from a family of musicians, you know? So like his goal was to be a working musician. Well, I think he wanted to, have success and all that stuff. But the Van Halen brothers like needed Dave to like get out of Pasadena. And Dave needed the Van Halen brothers because they were so musical. Yeah. And and Dave had all well, I don't want to I don't know. Well, I feel well, like no, you know I mean, him so, better. Well, now but also than like in terms me. of like the subjective thing. I just wrote it. Now <laughs> she's got it. Now I'm like, oh, I don't know. He's yours now. <laughs> I know. Run, run, be run, free. run, 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 run,
if they didn't like him, they could just say he sucked, you know? Or, or a lot of the feedback, mm -hmm. too, was the band's great, get rid of the lead singer. And so I think that's hard for him to come up. But, mm -hmm. I mean, but he took them next level. I mean, he Absolutely. was insane. And, and, and like, they would, like, there's stuff, there's stuff where, like, they just had disappointment after disappointment, and 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 they'd be they're like, this is it. Like when Gene Sim and Gene Simmons, yeah, they had they recorded a demo album and it didn't go anywhere, and they're like, oh, this is it. And Dave's like, no, no, he was the one that kept kept them going in a lot of ways mm -hmm. at, in the early days, even though they all needed each other so much. And also, they all met when they were in high school. Yeah. I mean, they were their late teens. And so you think about that. It's like, of course they can't quit each other. Of course they're, <laughs> like, always coming back to each other. Because totally. you've been, like, you knew each other in high school. You knew each other in the neighborhood. And then yeah. the neighborhood just all of a sudden became the world and stadiums. And yeah. to share that experience that pretty much no one else in the world can relate to. Absolutely. I mean, from going Valerie to Valerie Bertinelli. Well, I mean, in that terms of joke. like playing, yeah. <laughs> in terms of, in terms of like playing the, the clubs yeah, into yeah, like yeah. larger theaters, and yeah. then the theaters into the stadiums, and then like breaking the Guinness Book of World Record for like largest audience. Um, it was like a quarter of a million people or something that they played in front of. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Amy, I'm curious about yeah. one piece of information that I came sure, across, sure, sure, which sure, is sure. that the Van Halen brothers are part Asian. Yes, yes, and yes, yes. I'm, yes. I'm part Asian yes, as well. And yes. I like to think that I know all of the famous hoppas out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Keanu Reeves, Mark yeah. Paul Gossler. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Didn't know that the Van Halens were part Indonesian. Yes. And I'm really glad you brought that up because when I started working on this and wanted to play Eddie, I, I didn't, you know, realize this. And then as I got to know more about it, because I was so interested, I was actually writing about, because they're a quarter Indonesian, writing about all that history, and there was a lot of stuff about immigration and stuff like that. And it wasn't until very late in the process that I realized that, like, I shouldn't be playing this role when you got to get someone who's Indonesian to play this role. And then it was very late in the process, and it was like, I, I really spent a couple nights where, like, I have to drop out because I can't do this. So we made a decision that if it goes further to put the stuff in about, because there was a whole storyline about the mom and that all that stuff that just got taken out a little bit, not because it wasn't important, but because so much got taken out in order to like, or yeah, keep put together, streamlining, It's streamlining. the process of writing a play. Yeah. yeah, so it was like a big education for me and for all of us really about our own blind spots on a project and how you can evolve and how you're in a different place than you are like even two years ago as far as awareness. So the whole goal was always to have an incredibly inclusive cast and it's an immigrant story, you know, so. Yeah, we had, cool. we, because we've had many like iterations and workshops and we had, we had uh, like one of our workshops yeah. where Amy stepped out and it was, it was amazing because every actor at the table um, was an immigrant. They, that was really and cool. That where, was really uh, cool. We had a Korean actress. We had uh, a Syrian actor, uh, actually, who plays Valerie. Yeah, and it was really interesting because they we they really talked about how so much of the story is about these the Van Halen brothers coming from Holland and, yeah, and coming yeah. from Amsterdam, not knowing English and not and yeah, yeah, not knowing the language, and then growing yeah. up, and then I mean. It was when they started getting big. It was like something like less than nine years after they had moved. It's crazy! Wow! To yeah. the United States, so, and it's interesting to their history yeah, because very they really kind of like push away that 
part. Like they they seem to identify more as Dutch, or it's very. It, there's a lot at play there. I feel like it was such a different time. I don't know. Yeah, don't absolutely. Know. I mean, you know, yeah. Freddie Mercury as well. Like yeah, so many people yeah. who yeah. passed as white, or mm-hmm. you know, felt that like being a rock star was incongruous with their. Yeah, and their know. ethnic or I know. Yeah. ethnic heritage. Gosh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, that's I didn't ask that question, but I'm I'm so uh, amazed but that that's I, the answer. And well, because yeah. it, it yeah. was such a you know, I, I remember when I re- that really hit home. I really had to sit with myself and it's like, what do you believe in? What's important? And I was like. 80% okay with, because I did write the play, and I am Dutch and whatever, but it's still, you know, it's ultimately, mm-hmm. if it has another life, I want to make good on that, you know, definitely. And what do you hope that audiences take away from the show? Um, I mean, we've talked about it a lot. I think it's been fun doing the show because we have gotten a lot of non-theater people seeing the show, which for me is always exciting. I think it's theater's boring if it's just for theater people. So having these outside audiences come in, and I think it's a love letter to Van Halen and a love letter to that type of rock, but also I think it's an ode to fandom. And the show closes out with, with basically, when you see an aging rock star, all things great and magical are inherently ridiculous, and you yourself are ridiculous, or will be soon if you're lucky and very, very brave. And I think that's it, is like when there's just, if your goals seem absurd, or ridiculous, that's probably a good thing. And if you just keep pursuing that. And and just quickly, David Lee Roth, as an aging rock star, it is a New York City EMT or was a New York City EMT. Yeah. And now also has some sort of like tattoo, tattoo care mm-hmm. line. Yes. Skincare yes. line. For the aging first... skin, for elder skin. Yeah. But it's the first <laughs> so tattoo sweet. skincare line. It's very it's... smart because there's going to be a lot of old tattoos coming up really soon. Oh, and apparently yes. he's living in Japan right now uh, working with uh, a sword. Ma- uh, he's he's learning more sword right, work. Right. That's also a huge thing of his is like samurai sword craft. Oh, right? yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's the thing, too, is that he had done martial arts his entire life so he has this certain discipline in terms of training so it was like he could party as hard as he would work and there's this great story about called rothing the stage that mm-hmm. roadies would call it it was he any city they were in at like 4 a.m he would take the towel from his hotel room go to the stage and get on his hands and knees and wash every inch of the stage so that it was his Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and that's another thing it's about like those the brown M&Ms legends. that yes. they put they put them in the ledger because the stage they did so much acrobatics on the stage that that they knew that if someone read the rider uh, thoroughly enough so all their their technical um, demands were in place and correct that that if they that they would read about the M&M so they knew they read it thoroughly if there were no brown M&Ms and that was the whole reason they did that because they were doing so much gymnastics and jumping on the stage so and traveling so and so much equipment that if there were fault lines in the setup they could really hurt themselves right it's not a diva thing it's a safety thing it was actually a safety thing but they but they marketed it as a rock and roll diva yeah, thing. Because they were but there was like press. one place where the, the floor of where they were performing collapsed because they couldn't yeah. handle the weight of their stage and equipment. Because it was crazy. It was a huge, they, like many, many, many trucks of equipment. <laughs> and Amy, same yeah. question to you. What do you hope audiences walk away from the show with? It's interesting. When you write something, sometimes you're not very eloquent. Um, I, I think that joy is an undervalued emotion. I think we're in trying times, and there's a lot of very serious, wonderful theater. 
my goal was to find the depth in something that was could have been silly, but it wasn't to me. Um, and I hope that people just think twice about parceling out their value to like things that are what's what's what what's meaningful when what's not. You know, mm-hmm. that's a complicated answer. But like, but- I just feel like there's a value to joy, especially right now, where it helps us get through the harder things. And I think it's important. Yeah. I will. Yeah, I think it's been nice to work on a show where it is just like humor and joy and that the audience can come in and just have a good time for an hour and a half. And I think sometimes uh, we don't give as much value to that type of art, but I think that type of art is just as necessary. And there's like like there there are hard times in the play. I mean, it goes really it goes dark, <laughs> but um, I just think that's as valid as something that is expressing itself more sorrowfully, you know. I mean, Joy's having a big moment right now with the spark joy. Yeah, yeah, method, yeah, yeah. So, oh, oh, yeah, I think, that's right. I think we all could take some more joy into our lives. And if people want to do that and come see the show, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, tell yeah, us yeah, where yeah. it's running and until when. It's uh, running at the Atlantic uh, Theater Company Stage 2 till uh, February 17th. So we have eight more shows left um, Tuesday through Sunday night. Great. And any plans for it after that, or we'll have to wait and see? Uh, we'll have to wait and see, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Amy and Megan, thank you so thank much you. for Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> At the height of Van Halen's popularity, David Lee Roth's sexual appetite was so prolific that he was rumored to have insured his penis, nicknamed Little Elvis with Lloyds of London. Whether or not that story is fallacious, there's a long tradition of celebrities insuring body parts, from David Beckham's 100 million pound legs to Bruce Springsteen's $6 million vocal cords. Joining us by phone to talk more about how exactly one goes about insuring a life or limb is attorney Alan Levin, a partner at Locklord. Alan, thanks for joining us. Sure. It's a pleasure to speak to you. And I think, um, you know, the answer to your question is um, David Beckham's leg and other celebrities' body parts are part of how they make their living. And there is a value attached to that over that person's working life that an insurer is able to value and set a premium for. Um, it, is, it is not something that's written in the admitted market, meaning where you buy your auto and homeowner's insurance. It's usually written in the surplus lines or non-admitted market, the famous name of that being Lloyd's, but there are companies who write on a non-admitted basis too. And Alan, can you tell me a little bit about maybe the history of this phenomenon? Uh, r- rumor has it. Uh, it goes back to Jimmy Durante, a, an actor before our time and who had a very large nose that was part of his routine. And he was probably one of the early celebrities to insure his nose. And then, as you said, people like David Beckham or even Mary Hart, whose legs are always showing on Entertainment Tonight. So both celebrities, athletes, and other people who have body parts that are uh, help them make their living or are critical to what they do, uh, those body parts have a value based on what they make. So I understand, um, say, 
David Beckham insuring his legs or Keith Richards insuring his middle finger on his left hand, there might be some intrinsic value to those body parts uh, in terms of how they make their living. But what about the softer cases, um, Betty Grable insuring her legs or J-Lo insuring her ass? How do you determine the value of that? I, again, without, without confirming that or being sure that those parts were insured, certainly people in the public like uh, actors, musicians, and sports celebrities, there is a value to their body. It is part of what helps them sell, sing, dance, um, hold themselves out as incredibly attractive, makes them photogenic, and an insurer is able to value that based on what they're making, what their future earnings are, and put a number to that, meaning is able to match a premium to that. Okay, so let's say, and I know that you can't see me right now, but let's say I want to insure my eyebrows. I can assure you that they are rather striking. Um, How would you go about, or how would an insurer go about deciding how integral to my professional success these eyebrows are, and then determine what the premium might be and what the payout might be? Well, the, the, the insurer is going to have to look at your earning potential, what you're making, what you do, and decide there's a nexus or a connection between your luxurious and beautiful eyebrows and the value of, the, of how you make your living. Once that's established, the insurer will decide what appetite it has for risk and place a premium on it. And so let's talk about that risk assessment and how I might go about filing a claim. Like, let's say I get overzealous with the plucking of my eyebrows. Um, how would I go ahead and try and recoup some of that uh, insurance money? So, so first of all, the policy will, if there's a policy issued and you reach an agreement, will discuss on what sorts of incidents it will pay. You plucking your eyebrows is probably not likely to be a covered loss because you took an action on your own as opposed to uh, David Beckham being in a car accident and his legs being damaged or Jimmy Durante, God, he's obviously gone, having um, a cancer that caused us to remove out of a chunk of his uh, nose removed. So there would have to be a fortuitous event not caused by the insured, that caused an injury to the part insured. Does that, does that make sense? That does make sense. And I'm interested about the risk assessment part as well, because it seems like there might be some people who just in general are higher risks. Um, David Beckham, maybe other athletes who take good care of their bodies, lower risk. Keith Richards or David Lee Roth or really any rock star I imagine might pose a bit of a higher risk. Would you say but that's you accurate? Are- you are, you are completely accurate. I think it's no different than when you are driving your car if you're in multiple accidents or have multiple speeding tickets, that's going to affect your premium. So certainly when insuring a body part, your lifestyle and the choices you make and the activities you partake in, like uh, you jump out of a plane and like parachuting, are going to affect the premium or whether or not we will provide cover. And I know that you're an attorney. Would you have advised your client, if they were an insurer, uh, to take on David Lee Roth's penis? Um, clients don't usually ask attorneys about underwriting decisions. So I'm not sure I would be asked that question. But what I will say is there is a premium, usually, that can take on any risk. And you would set that premium rather high? Potentially. Well, I wouldn't set the premium. The insurer decides what the premium is, but I think that's fair. Um, Alan, thank you so much for joining us today.
Sure. Have a great day. I appreciate your time. And that's the show. Join us next time when we will talk about the fight over landmarking the home of the Strand Bookstore. And we'll talk trash. Hope you can join us. Woman 2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 